Coming up today, the wild rise of Lad Baby and the Facebook famous, and we look at what's cooking in the world of cultured meat. You're listening to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Vicky Turk. Hi. Amit Koala. Hello. And Matt Reynolds. Hello. This was the week when it emerged that the controversial porn block has been left out of the UK's much-hyped draft online safety bill. Proposals for the porn block, which would have required scores of websites to hide behind age verification walls, have been around since 2016, but have now, seemingly, been quietly shelved. This was also the week when Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies plunged after China moved to place new curbs on cryptocurrency transaction services. And it was also the week when Google hosted its annual developer conference where it revealed that it is working on a futuristic video chat system called Starline, which recreates the person you're chatting with in 3D. Don't get too excited, though. It requires multiple cameras and might be a long time before it makes it to our phones and laptops. It does look exceedingly sci-fi, though. And after a year of staring at you all on Zoom, it would be quite nice to remember what you looked like in 3D. Well, I, I, I mean, just don't remember. Hopefully, we can do that in person without the need to have three D video calls. So I'm really, I'm really holding out for you know the the tactile three D that we're promised this summer. Yeah, no, I'm, I, that's fine. You can stay down an internet connection. I just, you know, I'd, I'd like to understand the the three D ness of Matt Reynolds again. It's been a while. What did we learn this week then, Amit? Let's start with you. I learned that in the Disney classic, The Lion King, the roar of Mufasa as he saves Simba and Nala from the hyenas is not a real lion's roar but actually a mix of a grizzly bear a tiger and an F-16 falcon Is this a bit like that Simpsons joke where the only way to capture cows on film is to paint horses to look like cows Yeah yeah, exactly that's right you can't you know if you record a real lion's roar it just doesn't sound impressive enough so I guess they had to they had to beef it up Is there is there a justification is that why they had to combine an F-16, a tiger and a bear, a, a real lion's roar just isn't roary enough? Well, also, I assume that, you know, in the mid-90s, the technology for miking up a lion probably wasn't where it's at today. And it might have been tricky to really get the roar in the fidelity that you might want for a cinematic production. I wonder what, you know, OK, I haven't seen a film or been to the cinema, obviously, in a very long time. I can't remember what... what company is at the beginning of a film in the like pre-roll bit where you've got the roar the lion mgm mgm yeah it's mgm i wonder what what they use amit come back next week with the truth about the mgm lion's roar i will report back vicky what did you learn this week um truth form i also have an animal fact this week about sharks one of the best animals in my opinion actually king of fish Sharks may use the Earth's magnetic field as a navigational tool. So a new study in current biology found that sharks can pick up on cues from the different magnetic fields at different locations, which may help them travel thousands of miles, but always be able to find their way home. The researchers actually tested this using real sharks in a special tank where they could manipulate the magnetic field and the sharks swam in different directions accordingly. So if they made it as if... um, you know, so that it felt like the sharks were in the south, 
they'd realise, oh, I need to orient myself northwards in order to go home, and they'd swim in that direction. Seamlessly from confused sharks to cultured cows, Vicky. Our first story this week is about cultured meat. <laughs> yeah, not cultured shark meat, I'll just clarify. Uh, but cultured meat is having a moment at at the moment. <laughs> um, by cultured meat, I mean meat that is made of animal cells, but not animals. So not involving the slaughter of animals. It's meat grown from an animal cell in the lab. And at the end of 2020, there was quite a breakthrough when US company Eat Just got approval in Singapore to serve its cultured chicken, making it the first company to get a cultured meat product to market. It also just got $170 million funding to scale. And there are plenty of other companies also working on cultured meat, particularly when it comes to beef products. Matt, we're kind of at the dawn of a new meaty era, aren't we? Yeah, I think so. Or at least a meaty era, era is very slowly creeping its way over the horizon. So people have been saying that cultured meat is just around the corner since 2013, which is when uh, Mark Post debuted the first lab-grown hamburger. And in the intervening years, there have been lots of public tastings, there have been a lot of new startups founded, but cultured meat isn't really here. I don't know, you might have noticed, but you can't go down to the supermarket and buy some burgers brewed in a factory. And the reason for this, and for the pretty slow movement of this industry, is that the science behind cultured meat is really, really difficult. And there are loads of different challenges. So there are problems with knowing what to feed cells or what kind of container you should grow them in. But one of the biggest difficulties is finding the right cells to start with. And just a little you know, run through of how this works. So the whole idea of cultured meat, which is sometimes called lab-grown meat, sometimes called clean meat, but so the industry bumps between different terms. I'm going to call it cultured meat here. The idea is you start with a really small sample of cells, maybe half a gram of muscle tissue or something like that, and you put it in a big vat called a bioreactor, and you get these cells to duplicate over and over again. You probably actually scale up the size of your bioreactor as you're doing that. You wouldn't put a tiny sample in a massive vat. That's probably a bit of a silly idea. But essentially, you scale up these cells, you get them to duplicate over and over and over again to have this big mass of cells. Then what you do is you get them to differentiate, which is change into a different kind of cell. So you get these, whatever cells you've got to start with, you say, oh, I want you to become a muscle cell, or I want you to become a fat cell, go and do it. And then you've got something that resembles a burger. So at the end of this process, from this tiny sample of cells, you might have thousands of tons of meat. Now, I made that sound pretty simple. I think pretty simple. But you know, you know, roughly, you double cells loads, you end up with meat at the end. But in reality, it's really, really difficult. You need cells that are going to divide lots and lots of times without dying. You also need to make sure these cells can differentiate into the right kinds of cells. So as I said, you want muscle, fat, and connective tissue. No one wants a random bone cell or you know, a bit of an eye in their burger. And lastly, what you want is cells that react the same way every single time. Because we're talking about bioreactors that could hold 20,000 litres of material. So these are you know, perhaps thousands or millions of pounds worth of meat inside each bioreactor. So companies will really want to know that the stuff they put in the bioreactor at the beginning, they're going to get the same result out the other end every single time. So it's not as simple as, you know, just finding a cow cell. Cow cells are not all the same. And some might have properties that make them better for culturing meat than others. What exactly makes one cell different from another? And what sort of cell would we ideally want to use in these cell-based food products? 
Yeah, you're totally right. It's not as easy as just plucking a cell from a donor animal, scaling that up and saying, job done. You know, let's just do that however many times. So there are a bunch of potential cell types that companies and researchers are experimenting with. So one option, in some ways, the most simple option is to use muscle stem cells. So we know how to take a tiny muscle biopsy from a cow and the cow can be living or, or it might have recently died. And we know how to take that biopsy and grow it into mus- muscle tissue. Now, the problem is, is if you do that, those cells only divide a certain number of times and they don't necessarily turn into all the cells that we need to make cultured meat. So we're not totally sure whether these muscle samples can reliably turn into fat cells, for example. So that's a bit of a problem. It's not very good having a burger if it doesn't have some fat in it. One way to get around this is to use cells that divide many, many more times than muscle cells, which are kind of adult stem cells. And potentially, these cells that we might use could divide limitlessly. So there are two ways to do this, really. We could start with embryonic stem cells, which double loads and loads of times and can eventually turn into any cell type. Or what you can do is you can take an adult cell and reprogram that cell to put them into an embryonic-like state. And those cells are called, there's something called induced pluripotent stem cells. Now, The problem is, is to study these cells and to work out how they might turn into meat, scientists need to have some of these cells to begin with. They need to know exactly where to get them. They need to know how they grow, what type of proteins they produce. They basically need to have a cell and say, right, I know if I put that in a jar, it's going to do this type of thing because I'm really, really familiar with it. And that's basically how the medical industry can kind of test drugs on different cell types because they say, well, we know what the cell usually does. So if we put something different in it, we know that it's responding to the drug and it's not just doing something randomly because it's a cell we don't know about. Now, these are called cell lines, which are basically a bank of a certain cell type that is stored in freezers, and anyone can take them out. Usually, you can buy them from these big repositories, um, and you can experiment on them. And there are thousands and thousands of cell lines out there, as I mentioned. And they've been super important in the development of drugs and vaccines and how we understand genes and how we understand how proteins are expressed. In fact, if you think about almost any modern uh, medical breakthrough. It's almost definitely there's been a cell line involved at some point, probably in the early part of the experimentation. The big problem for the cultured meat industry is that it doesn't have any public cell lines at all. There are some efforts underway to kind of establish and share some cell lines, right? So last year, the Good Food Institute, which funds research into alternatives to animal protein, set up a scheme for companies and researchers to do that, just that, to deposit their cultured meat cell lines and try and establish some sort of library of cells that other people could go back to uh, and look at and perhaps work with. But so far, not many people have taken them up on the offer. Why is that? The first reason is, is that cell lines are potentially really lucrative intellectual property. If you think you could have a sample of cells and eventually you could turn that into thousands of tons of meat, maybe hundreds of thousands of tons of meat, maybe it'd be your meat supply as a company for decades and decades. These are obviously really, really valuable assets that these companies have. And there are over 40 companies at the moment that are looking at cultured meat. So these companies are not necessarily that willing to share this kind of secret source of their material because it could prove to be exceptionally valuable later down the line. And that's especially if these cell lines are genetically engineered because these can be patented. But also um, processes around cell lines can be patented as well. So there's a whole bunch of intellectual property that keeps these cell lines slightly mysterious. There's another problem, and that's that cows are just pretty understudied. So we don't experiment on cows for when it comes to medicines and stuff because cows aren't that similar to humans. We tend to um, experiment either on mice because they're really 
really easy to breed and keep, um, which is why loads of research is done in mice, or we, or we experiment on something like pigs, right, or maybe human cells. So that's why we've got loads of cells when it comes to mice or pigs or humans, but we have barely any relevant cow cell, um, cow cell lines. In fact, we only isolated embryonic cow stem cells in 2018, and there hasn't really been much research into cultured meat at all, and that's because no one was really thinking about these cell lines. So if any researcher wants to work on cow stem cells, for example, what they have to do is either hopefully they've got a friendly vet so they can go and create their own sample, which is pretty difficult to do, or they can try and cajole a friendly researcher and say, I, you know, I know you created some stem cells, can I please borrow them? But that's really difficult because how do you know that the cells that you're studying are going to be the same as someone else's cells that are using half a planet away that take from a different kind of cell? It'd be so much better, or a different kind of animal, I mean, it'd be so much better if they could say, oh, we both bought our cells from this repository, we know exactly what this cell is, and so when we do this experiment, we can know if we're replicating each other's results, and we know that we're essentially starting in the same material. Now, as I mentioned, one animal that has been well studied is mice. They're about the only mammal that we do have good muscle stem cell, stem cell lines for. So a lot of the basic cultured meat research still relies on mouse muscle. And there's a lot you can learn from mouse cells, but obviously mice aren't the same as cows. So it's a big limitation to the field. Yeah, I don't really fancy a mouse burger, to be honest. <laughs> um, but as you say, you know, there are lots of companies working on this, even if they are being quite secretive about it, which I guess is understandable. Presumably at some point, one of them will solve this problem and come up with the perfect cell line, produce their cultured meat product. Don't we just have to kind of bide our time until they've done that? Maybe. I think there are lots of companies that have done pretty advanced research on this. So there's certainly some very exciting cell lines that are currently being worked on at the moment. But I think it's pretty unlikely that we'll see one cell line to rule them all. So for a start, certain cell lines might be better at creating different types of meat. So you might use one cell line or a combination of cell lines to make a steak, and you might use a different cell line to create a burger. Secondly, they might vary a bit depending on location. So in the EU, for instance, you can't sell gene-edited food. So there's that consideration. It's unlikely that any cultured meat products that are sold in the, U in the UK or in the EU uh, will be made from gene edited cells. And then there are really specific problems. So certain cell lines might prefer a certain solution to grow in, or they might prefer a different way of being arranged. Cells are super fussy. Some don't like being stuck to different things. Some prefer to float around. Some, prefers to be, some prefer to be attached to certain um, scaffolds. So the idea is, is the more research we have in this area... And the more open it is, the more we can understand what works and what doesn't work and what might be suitable for certain types of applications. But at the minute, we don't know if we're doubling up on our work or we don't know if we're missing some really fundamental breakthroughs because we just don't have access to some of the raw materials. And you mentioned gene editing, which is one potential approach that companies could take here, right? And um, one of the things that they could do is genetically engineer the cells to make them theoretically immortal right so they just keep dividing forever you'd have an essentially infinite supply of the same cells without ever having to go back to an animal at all do you think that's something that we could see actually happening yeah, I think so. In fact, a lot of the researchers I spoke to said that without genetically engineering the cells, cultured meat might not work at all. One of the really attractive things about having these immortal cell lines is that it means that you know that when you start a new batch of meat, you're putting exactly the same cells in that you did 
uh, you know, put in five months ago or maybe even five years ago. And that means you can really, really optimise your process around a very, very specific set of cells. If the input is the same absolutely every time, then you can be pretty sure that you're probably going to get a similar result you know, at the end of that process. And there's another reason, and that's because the way that cells are grown and the formula they're grown in is really, really expensive. And we need to find a way to reduce the cost of that formula, something called growth media. And one thing you could do is edit cells. So for instance, they produced some of the components of that growth media. And that'd mean that you didn't have to have growth media that had such expensive components in. Or what you could do is engineer cells so they were more efficient at, turn, efficient at turning waste products back into material for growth. And these are all things that would mean that cells would be able to use less of that growth media and they'd be able to grow faster and, um, you know, and better. And Really, if you kind of open the door to genetic engineering, you can start to really have some fun with it. So I spoke to one researcher who had recently edited some cow cells so they produced more antioxidants. So you could, you know, potentially sidestep some of the problems with red meat by having antioxidants that basically counter, counter, counteract some of the you know, negative effects of eating red meat. But he said, you know, why stop there? You could engineer chicken cells so they could produce limonene, which is basically the molecule that gives citrus fruits their, fruits their flavour. So you'd have lemon chicken in the cell. So you do all kinds of interesting things in terms of nutrients and in terms of allergens. So really, it opens up a really new way of thinking about meat. Interesting. But without a cell line to start with, researchers can't really start playing around with that fun stuff. And that's why some of them are really keen for the industry to open up a little bit and share a bit more, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think you know, there's a few different elements of this. One, okay, it's fair enough that these companies that, as you mentioned right at the beginning, have got a lot of funding and there's a lot riding on them getting this right, right? So they're not really about to share their, you know, their secret recipe with everyone. But also, they're probably creating lots and lots of research that not isn't necessarily right at the top of their game, but could be really useful for, you know, cultured meat researchers. So perhaps they've got their favourite cell lines, and they're pretty sure that'll end up in the product. But they might have a completely different cell line that could be really useful for perhaps refining how we create bioreactors, or it could be could be really useful for, um, you know, designing a new type of growth media. So it's not that you basically need to say to these companies, all right, open up, we want to, you know, we want access to your best material, just show us what you've got. You know, the people I'm talking to are basically saying, like, it's great that all this work is going on, but if you can kind of give us access to some of the more raw materials, we can start working on these problems. So, you know, I think that's really the thing. And we've seen a bunch of, you know, patent applications around this and the engineering of stem cells. So companies are really, really aware that these cell lines are going to become very important intellectual property. But other people are saying, well, you know, if we can kind of get involved on this, we might be able to hurry the whole process up and come up with a better way of, you know, refining and then producing this meat. So it sounds like we've probably still got a bit of a wait ahead of us before we can start to throw cultured meat onto the barbecue. What happens next? When can I expect that to happen? Yeah, I mean, that is such a difficult question, isn't it? I mean, if you're in Singapore, if any of our listeners are in Singapore, then there's a restaurant that sells um, this Eat Just cultured chicken so they can go there and get it. So that's pretty exciting. You know, it's somewhere that you can go buy it. I think it's also available for delivery. But it's certainly true that until the cost of um, cultured meat, which people still estimate is maybe 10,000 times more than conventional meat, maybe 100 times higher than uh, conventional meat, depending on the exact ingredients that are used. Until that cost comes down, it's pretty unlikely we're going to be using it. And there are a couple of cell lines that researchers can get their hands on. So I mentioned right at the beginning that um, that we have isolated embryonic 
stem cells from cows. And I know the researchers that did that at the University of California, Davis, they are sharing those stem cells. So they're sharing it with the industry and they're sharing it with academic groups, although they're not in a, actually a you know, repository for anyone to buy. There's also a company in the UK, it's called Roslyn Technologies, which has started selling its um, pig cell lines. It's originally for drug use, but after some interest from the cultured meat firm, they said, oh, okay, actually, this could be a really big focus of our business. So we're starting to see that people are getting wise to the game and saying, right, okay, this cultured meat industry is probably going to be a thing. They're going to need some raw materials. So let's start putting money into researching these cell lines and then selling them, selling them to companies. So I think that's really, really exciting, but it does feel that we really are in these early days. And at the moment, we're kind of stumbling around a little bit in darkness because we're not sure, who, sure who's doing the best job. We don't really have great access to the best materials. So anything that does change might come as a bit of a surprise, right? So maybe someone will launch a product somewhere and we didn't exactly see it coming because no one knows exactly where the most advanced work is happening. We could be all taken by surprise then. Matt, you and I both choose not to eat meat. Are you looking forward to the cultured meat revolution? Would you eat a cultured burger or a steak or even a mouse burger, perhaps? Yeah, I'm all for it. I'd have any of those. And the, the fun thing is, is actually cultured meat means that you could potentially eat all kinds of species that we don't eat normally. There's companies that are working on, you know, kangaroo, I think, and, you know, buffalo and all kinds of species that perhaps you wouldn't see in Tesco. So, I mean, I'm basically, I mean, just sign me up. It's been a long time since I've had a, a proper burger. Impossible burgers are great, but it's not really the same. So, yeah, I, yeah, I just, uh, I can't wait to kind of sink my teeth in. What about, so, Amit and James, you're both meat eaters. Is this something that would cause you to switch and would you pay a premium for a cultured meat burger or you know how do you feel about it i would definitely like to try the lemon chicken that sounds delicious uh, i guess my, my take on it is is that like you said the impossible burger it's not the same but it's pretty good and my question is by the time this stuff is in the market is the vegan stuff going to be almost indistinguishable from actual meat that cultured meat kind of doesn't have a place i think at the moment you know, obviously, I'm open to eating cultured meat if it's better for the planet and, you know, and that kind of thing. And it means I don't have to change my, my selfish habits. So I think from that perspective, it's great. But if it's not actually better for the planet, if it turns out that it takes way more energy and costs way more to make a cultured meat burger versus getting one from a cow or getting one that's like 90% of the way there that's vegan, then I wonder whether the sums will add up. Yeah, I think that's a really big issue because you're right. Something like an Impossible Burger or a Beyond Meat Burger does get pretty close to the experience of, um, you know, meat of a hamburger, especially because that meat is it's not formed, right? It's, it's not like it's a steak where you cut through it and there's a bit of fat or something. I think a lot of people in the cultured meat industry think that they'll probably start with those kind of things, burgers or sausages, basically meat soups. It's why we've got chicken nuggets as well. But that really the real potential will come with, um, you know, structured cuts of meat like steak or chicken breast and things like that and not only can you charge a slightly higher price for it but it's also something that you really can't recreate when it comes to plants so it seems that even when we get cultured meat burgers that might not actually be the you know the industry's real um you know what the bulk of the industry will end up doing so i think think that in reality we're probably still quite far away from seeing these products actually you know assume the gap they will and when you get to prime cuts and away from kind of slops and slurries, that question of provenance becomes really interesting, right? So let's say in 20, 30 years time, you can go into a cultured meat butcher and get 
your favorite cut of meat to have with some veg for dinner or whatever, right? And when you go into butcher now, they'll say, oh, yeah, this is from, you know, a farm in Wales that we've been working with for, for decades. They might say, oh, yeah, this is from reference cow 72616 uh, who lived 40 years ago um on this farm and these are the characteristics that make this reference cow a particularly tasty cow for this cut of meat so sort of the way that these kind of products will be marketed if you go into supermarkets in the uk now i'm sure you're all familiar there are fake farms right all of the supermarkets have made up farms where you can go and get your your produce from and this would almost you'd imagine see an acceleration of that where we'd have the reference cow and we'd maybe have a particular favorite reference cow that we enjoyed eating from which is just bizarre i wonder if it could even go further and you'd actually end up with almost like hybrid meats that take some characteristics from beef some characteristics from chicken and you almost have branded meats that become a thing where you know um, mcdonald's or whoever will come up with a a new type of meat that kind of combines all the different animals you know in a sort of noah's ark type situation uh, into one perfect cut of meat i i like the idea amit that the best cut of meat is actually just combining as many types <laughs> of meat, meat as properly as opposed to one really really refined cut of meat you just no just stick a lamb stick a chicken in there put a goose in there as well more the merrier give me two of every animal yeah, what if you could have a beef wing why not if cows could fly would they be delicious? Podcast at wired.co.uk. If you could combine any animals together into one super animal cut of meat, what would it be? Or more seriously, would you be up for eating cultured meat? And how much further do you think the industry has to go until it's commonplace? Podcast at wired.co.uk. Do get in touch. From cultured meat to culture, here's a fun fact for all of you. Only three acts in the UK have ever achieved a hat-trick of consecutive Christmas number ones. Two of them you've undoubtedly heard of. They're the Beatles and the Spice Girls. They're generation-defining artists who have permanently altered the musical landscape and become global household names. The third is Lad Baby, who's a six-foot-eight-inch-tall father from Nottingham with a penchant for sausage rolls, Amit. This week, we published a fascinating story looking into the weird world of what we're calling the Facebook famous. This is people who are megastars on Facebook, but virtual unknowns outside of it. What's going on? So I guess first up, we should give a little introduction to Lad Baby for people who might not be familiar with him. So he is a, as you said, James, a guy from Nottingham who posts pranks, hacks and challenges with his wife. Uh, Roxanne it's all kind of very low tech it'll be things about parenting or um, you know messing he just, he's just kind of like a normal guy that's his kind of shtick and he he makes these very kind of low tech videos he props his phone up on a big sports direct mug and films himself you know doing pranks on his wife he uses free apps to edit his content um, and he's huge you know he's absolutely massive on Facebook his fans who call themselves Turbos pay £3.49 a month for access to exclusive lad baby content he has his own brand of crisps with walkers he has, as you said, James, had three consecutive Christmas number ones with sausage roll themed takes on popular songs. Some of the fans that um, Amelia Tate spoke to for this piece have got tattoos of his slogans on their on their bodies. Um, but the weird thing about Lad Baby is that he's only really famous on Facebook. As you say, he's Facebook famous. In the last five years, he's accumulated more than five million followers on the social network. But he's part of this weird group of people who, for whom Facebook popularity hasn't translated into popularity elsewhere. 
So the most watched creator on Facebook, which, you know, let's remember is the biggest social media site in the world with, you know, billions of monthly users, has 37 million followers. But on YouTube and TikTok, the top creators have got more than 100 million followers. Lad Baby is more popular on Facebook than he is on any other platform. And one of the reasons that the Facebook famous have kind of arisen is that the content that Facebook favours is fundamentally different to the content that's successful on other platforms you know it's, it's this family content it's things like magic tricks and motivational speaking it's it's candid camera shows of the sort of you've been framed uh, variety and four of the five top creators featured in facebook's creators 2020 year in review are over 30 so it's a different demographic to maybe the, the, the demographic you might see on youtube or tiktok and it's so so different the strange thing about we, we all know that Facebook isn't like the other big social media sites, but stopping and thinking about what that does to the kind of content that's shared on Facebook, we tend to fixate on the political side of it and Facebook's problems for functioning democracies. But it has an impact on the softer stuff as well, right? So the Facebook famous, as we're calling them, they're different somehow. They're less polished. They're older. They're more wholesome in a way they're less polished certainly right and they're only really famous on facebook so something different is going on here what is it and what's causing it yeah that's right so you know these people although they have millions of followers they don't cut through to the mainstream at all you won't see lad baby on tv really uh, over the last few years you've seen youtubers get spots on the great british bake-off strictly come dancing teen tiktokers regularly feature in the new york times but um, Lad Baby, you know, rarely appears on primetime. He's only done a handful of newspaper interviews. Th this piece is actually one of the first kind of long-form interview pieces that he's ever done in the UK, despite having had three number ones. I wonder how many interview pieces the Spice Girls had done by the time they got to three consecutive Christmas number ones. Um, yeah, and we looked at why in this piece, and it's partly down to Facebook's kind of strange relationship with its creators, and, and I guess the way that Facebook's seen itself as less of an entertainment platform than some of the other other platforms. So. In the mid-2010s, Facebook tended to favour publishers instead of personalities. When the site first introduced video monetization in 2015, it invited traditional media producers such as Hearst and Fox to profit from the scheme. It tried to entice old media companies onto its platform, um, as it turned out, by overstating its video metrics. Uh, and new publishers sprung up at the same time to capitalise on this kind of apparent boom in Facebook. It was like a Facebook video gold rush. You might remember brands like Unilad, Lad Bible, Tastemade, Tasty from BuzzFeed kind of quickly rising up, picking up loads of followers and quickly dominating the social network. And what this did, I was still using Facebook at the time, as I'm sure a lot of people who have since gone away from the platform did. What it did was, unlike on YouTube where you watch your favourite channels or on TikTok where you follow your favourite accounts, on Facebook, the consumption of everything back then and even now was passive, right? And particularly for video, it's autoplay, it's shared into your newsfeed from everywhere and anywhere. And because videos have autoplayed on Facebook since 2013, they kind of end up getting consumed into the mulch of other nonsense that makes up the newsfeed. And even if you enjoyed all the weird videos that were appearing in your feed, there's no easy way to tell where they come from. So the trend of big publishers re-uploading random videos from anonymous creatives meant that content theft was rampant, right? Facebook share button confused people into associating videos that had been published by, let's say, Unilad, but were actually first put out by an individual. But in their opinion, they'd been shared by their friends. So it wasn't really clear who was creating the magic, if you like. So while other platforms paved the way for 
global superstardom that broke three broke free of those platforms facebook presented its creators with something of an uphill struggle right yes exactly compared to the other platforms facebook really made it quite difficult to make a living from being a facebook creator you know youtube and tiktok have got teams of people whose whole job is to just manage that relationship with creators and entice creators onto their platforms they've got or they had very lucrative um schemes and you know we saw when all those tiktok clients launched you know towards the middle of last year that they were kind of throwing huge sums of money at creators to try and get them onto the platform facebook didn't really bother with any of that until about 2017 and you know facebook creators struggled on the sidelines while youtubers went mainstream and without that kind of direct communication with facebook creators were left you know as in the same way as a lot of media organizations actually kind of blindsided by changes to the algorithm so in 2018, for example, Facebook updated its newsfeed to prioritise friends and family over brands and media, and a lot of pages saw their page views kind of plummet overnight. That's starting to change. So in the last two years, Facebook has launched a number of monetization tools. Um, so Facebook stars lets fans show their appreciation for creators who earn a penny for every star sent. It also expands access to fan subscriptions. So this is what people who are fans of Lab Baby can pay £3.49 a month for. You know, you can pay a monthly recurring fee to creators for exclusive content. In March, Facebook widened the eligibility criteria for in-stream ads, so kind of widening that pool of people who can make money from their content, and it kind of created these official ways of um, creating live events and finding brand sponsorships. Obviously, these are things that Facebook creators were doing anyway, but there was no kind of official way for a creator on Facebook to hook up with a brand who was interested in sponsoring football content or you know food content or whatever it might have been. So the effect this has had is it's meant that Facebook has now become a much friendlier place for creators. So the number of content creators earning more than $10,000 a month grew by 88% between 2019 and 2020. It's it's too simple to say that this is kind of a gold rush. You know, there's still only a million people that currently pay subscriptions to creators across the whole platform. But it's clear that this is starting to change. Facebook fame is starting to become as lucrative as it is on other platforms. And some superstars on Facebook, like Lab Baby, have really, really benefited from this, right? So last year he was able to quit his job as a graphic designer and become full-time on Facebook. And that's kind of remarkable to think that it was only last year that someone with millions of followers was able to go full-time on a platform. And even though he's full-time, he's still very homespun, right? He's very Facebooky. Everything that he puts out kind of has that vibe to it. And that speaks broadly to how difficult it is to be successful on Facebook, but also the kind of content that Facebook's audience wants. It isn't aspirational in the same way as, let's say, Facebook-owned Instagram is. Yeah, I think I think the fact that you, the audience, the, the content that Facebook's audience wants is quite an interesting way of putting it. I don't necessarily know if it is what it wants, but it's, it's sort of that base kind of really like low-level stuff that anyone will just watch because it's so simple and so easy to understand and so uh, arresting. So the kind of content that used to go viral on Facebook wasn't that different to what you see elsewhere on the web. So, you know, it was pictures of videos of funny cats, videos of people making those pizzas from the top down with ridiculous toppings, all those kind of recipe videos and things like that. But today, as you say, it's got its own distinct, distinct style. So you don't see the kind of use of special effects that you might see on TikTok. There's a lot of parody songs. Um, there's a lot of people holding up handwritten signs to the camera. There's a lot of, you know, life lessons. And uh, there's a lot of kind of weird sexualized videos of the type that you might see on, on YouTube. That Those kind of things are rampant on on Facebook, sometimes even on the same page as some of the more wholesome stuff. 
the general trend is that Facebook loves raw content. So the structure of the newsfeed, as you said, means that viral videos are mixed up with updates from friends and family, which has the effect of weakening that divide between the audience and between creators, and it makes influencers seem like old friends. And this is one of the reasons that we think Hoyle is so popular. You know, he, he kind of comes to you in the midst of pictures of your friends and he talks to you and he's, he's kind of on your level and he's, he, he, people really feel like they know him. He says that on Facebook it feels like people want to have a conversation. And then, of course, there's the demographic thing as well. So in, in recent years, you know, people who maybe were the first people to get onto Facebook when it started have been, you know, leaving the platform in droves and there's been a surge in older people using the platform. And it's maybe a heart back to how social media used to be. It's less flashy, it's less produced, and it's much more kind of raw and, you know, homemade. Another way of looking at this is a bit less sympathetic, right? So one of the reasons I left Facebook, aside from it being problematic for politics and public discourse, is that a lot of the stuff that goes viral on Facebook just doesn't do it for me. That's not to say that the stuff that goes viral on YouTube or TikTok or Instagram is is any better or any worse um but certainly on facebook videos are quite click baity so silly titles big red circles even bigger yellow letters that stuff exists on other platforms as well but almost everything on facebook has that kind of homegrown aesthetic and that's partly because even today creators trying to get big on facebook are fighting against a platform that doesn't really care that much about individual fame right there are tiktokers and youtubers and instagrammers but you've probably never heard someone say oh they're a famous facebooker despite the fact that facebook is bigger than all of those platforms combined so unlike on other platforms as you've said where you've got community managers spending loads of time working with creators on facebook people like lad baby you have millions of followers and are famous enough to get three consecutive christmas number ones in the uk are very much left to just be themselves right yeah, and I think that's probably a function of the way Facebook sees itself. You know, unlike YouTube or TikTok, which, you know, probably see themselves more as, as entertainment companies rather than, than social media networks, Facebook has never really been solely for creators. It's been a place where you follow your friends and family, where you follow the news, where you plan birthday parties, where you join, you know, conspiracy groups, where you sell your old furniture. The Facebook famous exists because of Facebook's scale. But because of Facebook scale, it means that their fame can so easily go ignored as well. The people that are on Facebook watching these videos aren't necessarily sharing them to other platforms. You know, they're served them by the algorithm and they might share them privately on WhatsApp groups or things like that. But it's almost this filter bubble of of this kind of whole world that, that just doesn't um, break through into the mainstream media, either online or offline, which I think is really interesting. And I think it's a, it's a story about the fragmentation of the internet and the story of the fragmentation of popular culture and about how so much of how you perceive the world depends on where you spend your time online. And I think, you know, the rise of Lad Baby is a really, really fascinating way of um, of telling that story. And, you know, when he gets his fourth consecutive Christmas number one in December, you'll finally know who he is and how it's happened, which I think is, uh, you know, worth, worth taking the time to understand. I'm, I'm kind of interested to see what you guys think about this. Are you guys still on Facebook and, and are your feeds, you know, like James is just full of clickbaity videos? Yeah, I mean, I just had a quick flick through my Facebook to check what was kind of up, coming up on there. And they are completely just clickbaity videos. I got one that was, this guy shaved his face for the first time in 12 years. His wife could barely recognise him. I always get ones that are like, she thought he was a homeless man. 
what he did surprised her. And you know what? They're always these really schlocky, um, moralistic tales. But I always find myself thinking, I do want to know how he surprised him. And it's, it's a really interesting formula that is so kind of easy, regrettable. And I'm, I, I admit, I sometimes am a sucker for them. We've kind of moved on from that in the, in, you know, like five, ten years ago in the text-based world. We were all about, you know, well, we weren't, but people were all about, you know, kind of those kind of construct, headline constructions and things like that. And there's been a pivot towards, I guess, more high-quality content. But Facebook doesn't seem to have done that, at least with its video content. Yeah, I'm I'm technically, I think, still on Facebook, but only because um, some of my older relatives use Messenger to communicate and so and you know you you now can't have one without the other or something they kind of lock you in um so i haven't actually looked at the site in a long time but the ones i remember getting a lot of would sort of be um it would be like animal videos or like you know puppies being adopted and stuff like that which is kind of like you know heartwarming stuff it's interesting to see what happens when you don't have the professional sheen like put on top of the creator economy. So this is very much people going about their business, getting quite famous, not necessarily getting particularly wealthy off the back of it. And without the support of the platform behind them, it doesn't reach that next level. And it's not to say that by reaching that next level, it becomes better, right? Um, you know, there's there's all sorts of problems with people who become massively famous off the back of YouTube that we don't need to get into right here. But the sheer lack of things that have been written about these people who are phenomenally famous on Facebook, I think, says something kind of interesting. Um, I'm not I'm not really sure what it is, um, but Amit, you were kind of getting at it there with the internet's broken up in a strange way, and that if you stop looking at any one bit of it for any amount of time you can completely miss out on something really significant i think as well it it, it points to a trend in tech journalism and apologies in advance that this is a bit inside baseball but you know we're obsessed with the next big thing you know how much has been written about clubhouse versus how many people are on clubhouse you know what i mean and there's there's what a thousand times as many people on facebook but how often do you read stories about what's actually going on on facebook these days and it's because it's been around for so long and i guess we're kind of bored with it and moved on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing but actually there's a huge amount of people still there there and they are still doing interesting things and you know if you ignore it as we've seen in politics and it can be dangerous so there are the perspectives of four people who barely use facebook i'm sure amongst the thousands of people listening to the podcast there are lots of you who are still on facebook for a variety of different reasons it'd be really interesting to get your perspectives on the facebook famous or just what life is like on facebook nowadays away from the politics and the conspiracy theories podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that or anything else that we talked about on the podcast this week i should add if people are heading to the show notes to look for a link to matt's story about cultured meats you won't find one because it isn't published yet we'll be publishing it next week so head to wired.co.uk towards the middle of next week to read the full story the lab baby one though will be in the show notes time for a couple of your emails before we finish this week neil writes in from johannesburg in response to our discussion about end-to-end encryption last week he argues that trying 
uh, that tying the policing of user content to encryption is barking up the wrong tree. The real problem, he writes, is anonymity on social media. People are their worst selves when they're anonymous, he writes, requiring verified identity for all users, including their age, coupled with metadata, would give data to fight scourges like child sexual abuse material. He goes on to say that encryption and privacy are crucial to our online lives precisely because of the amount of data and power that companies like Facebook wield. I find it frightening, he writes, that Facebook, which shows no regard for the well-being of its users, determines what content 2.7 billion monthly active users see. That is real power with no accountability. And without end-to-end encryption, platforms can collect the most intimate and therefore most powerful data about us and use that to advance their bottom lines without concern about how that might impact us or our communities. This is a debate that could run and run. The point about verified identities is one that's brought up quite often. It's technically challenging and problematic in similar ways to removing end-to-end encryption, but it's a valid point and one that's often made in discussions like this. So thanks very much for your email. Jerome also wrote in from Belgium about episode 514 a couple of weeks ago, where we discussed how robots are maybe more like animals than humans. Jerome says, I have the feeling of having listened to the 100th rerun of the robots versus humanity debate. As an industrial automation engineer and home automation enthusiast, I have a biased but I believe informed view on the current state of things. And in very short, robots are dumb. That's Jerome speaking, hopelessly incredibly dumb and limited. Talking about intelligence in AI is an insult to intelligence. I think we can kind of see where you're coming from there, Jerome. Um, And he thinks that our comparison of robots to animals is pretty apt, but perhaps too generous to the robots, which can only do a single task and are very limited. He thinks robots will replace non-cognitive or manual tasks, just like horses or tractors or trucks before them, but isn't worried about them taking over the cognitive capacity of humans any time soon. Thanks for writing in, Jerome. And thanks to everybody that wrote in this week. Podcast at wired.co.uk. We really do love hearing from you, so please do get in touch. That's it for this week. We'll be back again same time next week. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.